everybody. Welcome to another episode of History Unloaded with Danny and Ashley. Ashley, what are we talking about today? Are museums actually the devil? Whoa, that's not the topic <laughs> I agreed upon. Well, no, I mean, when we, when we thought about this episode, you know, we were talking about kind of the state of museums today and their roles, and mm. we decided to do an episode on kind of the history of museums. And mm. I don't know, museums have kind of a murky history. Do you know a fact I learned? Well, actually, I learned several facts in researching. I and by researching, I mean versus... mad Googling before we did this. Which, which sites did you see? The NPR one? Because I read that one. <laughs> No, I, there was another one that did the number of museums in the country. And did you know, for you and our listeners, that there are more museums in the U.S. than Starbucks and McDonald's combined? Whoa. <laughs> 35,000 museums, according to the Institute of Museums and Library Science. How are there so many un unemployed museum professionals? <laughs> <laughs> right. The joke is like to go become a barista after college when you're museum studies degree doesn't work out but it should be like go to a museum when your coffee making degree doesn't work out <laughs> that sounded so snarky <laughs> it did it did i did not mean that to be so uh, awful yeah so, um anywho anywho yeah so the inter the history of museums is really kind of fascinating and it's something that i don't know i learned about it in grad school did you danny i mean we did a little bit like you know you know, in undergrad, we had our like we had our regular historiography classes, and in grad school, we had like the museum version of those. So we got a little bit of it, but it was really focused on like like the twentieth century history of museums. Like, there's there's some stuff that comes before that. I mean, another fact I learned: the oldest museum in the world was in Babylon and founded by a princess. So what? <laughs> yeah. It was, there's like a ton of articles on it. Like I Googled oldest museum and it was all these articles about this princess in like ancient Babylon who... Are you sure this isn't a Disney movie? No, this is... Well, it could be. And maybe it's the next one. I don't know. Maybe they're just doing a lot of viral marketing. But yeah, she like collected stuff and she kept it at this temple in the capital or something. I don't know. I didn't read that closely. Come on. Um <laughs> This is the kind but of they think they have Michael like does. museum labels like they found like clay tablets during excavations that were like museum labels and they think that like her dad who was the king was like one of like he was an archaeologist like he went to old what was old to them cities and places and like dug stuff up and then gave it to her she put it in a museum and they did trilingual labels. Whoa, that's like more impressive than our museum. We don't. Oh, absolutely. There was there was discussion though about our museum if we were gonna put um, some stuff in Chinese, our labels in Chinese, and I just I don't think there's enough room in the museum for. No, we didn't really leave room for bilingual, unfortunately. But, but it's something that's been talked about. Um, yeah. But it all started in ancient Greece. I, I literally just said it started in Babylon. Nope. <laughs> Immediately contradicted. I meant that I meant that yeah, yeah. the museum I got you. I got started. I was just giving you crap. Well, yeah, you know, and that's one of the things that like when you look at the kind of the traditional history of museums, you get a lot of different kinds of stuff. So there's like ancient Greece, they came up with the term museum because they're French. <laughs> <laughs> the, the ancient Greeks, most famous for speaking French all the time. Um, I don't know, something like that. And it was basically like a house to like celebrate the muses. Um, 
And so there be sculptures and, you know, kind of what you think about in some of the galleries of natural history museums or art museums, um, you know, and that's the word that often gets attributed to museum. Um, but the actual, like, when you look at the way that people collect, I mean, there were, I guess, collectors predate museums in their modern sense of being open for the, you know, the public to enjoy and consume. Um, you know, there was a lot of different, like, there are a lot of different people that have collected forever. And uh, when you look at the evolution of the museum, one of the biggest kind of topics of conversation is, like, who is it for? Yeah. Why are we doing and that's, this? Who's it for? Yeah, and that's a good point, because we can point to, like, these examples of, like, oh, this could be, like, the earliest museum. And you have to yeah. use pretty generous air quotes. But... Because maybe yeah, it's really Babylon was just like a super nerd making her own labels, but like yeah, she she was. I don't, maybe she was a time traveler. I wonder like, if she would, wore like, a scarf. I mean, she had to. She was a museum professional. It's required. <laughs> Sorry, only museum professionals that listen to this will get that joke. Go to a museum conference any time of the year, hottest day of the year, whatever, and count how many scarves there are. It's yeah. a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> um, but yeah, to follow up on your point, it's like a lot of this stuff that we could look as maybe er examples of early museums or the whole idea. It, they're not really museums yet, but it's all built sort of almost exclusively out of like nobility collecting stuff and like personal collecting. And it happens to be become a lot of stuff. And then it's generally like sort of put into one place. Um, sometimes it's a room, sometimes it's a whole castle and generally it's not really for the public yeah well and you know interestingly enough there's like these different phases of museum history where they start opening things you know for people to see and you know it's kind of like it goes through the phase where it's like my buddies and rich people and and the museum experience changes um from what i remember in graduate school you know there was um you know the museum where only, like it was just guided tours mm -hmm. and so you were walked through the tour and you could touch and interact with everything and that's where camila told us we had to do this podcast because i said something about licking mummies he's like that was like legitimate like people like like they were terrible to these artifacts and you could take pieces of them with you you know almost like the first gift shop um you know in a lot of these museums <laughs> your face when i said that in a lot of these i'm just imagining like <laughs> like a museum gift store but like all on its own because yeah. the museum hasn't been invented yet like it's just <laughs> like we invented the gift shop but we haven't got to the museum yet. here's a bunch of really old stuff it's like the antique markets of like yeah. old, old timey towns, you know, <laughs> we don't have a museum attached to us, but everything in here could probably go in the museum. Uh, <laughs> our store is really boring. Oh, those people are going to find me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, they were like, like, I mean, there was a lot of like private tours, this idea of, you know, exclusivity, like, you know, only the special could see these things from around the world. And there's a, it was interesting about that is there's almost a revival in that debate. Uh, maybe not now in the museum field, but back when we were first installing the, or not installing the Cody Farms Museum, but conceptualizing the Cody Farms Museum, our designers said, you know, do you want to, I don't think you were here yet, Danny, but um, do you want to hold back some really cool pieces for very expensive paid, you know, vault experiences? And, um, and because that had become, that was becoming more and more of a trend, 
you know, in some of the bigger, more popular public museums where, because they can't display everything anyways, where they were holding some things back where you could spend a couple hundred dollars and go in the vaults and see something, you know? And, and I think that the reason I say, I don't think that's probably popular now, you know, five years later, because museums are so, you know, about the people, <laughs> you know, a lot of the museum professionals are so interested in, you know, affordability of museums for everybody, museums for all, interpreting everybody's stories, um, that I feel like, you know, that would probably have not been as popular, but it's interesting how it comes in waves of popularity. Yeah. And there's been discussions too about like, you know, obviously pre COVID it was more of an impact, but just talking, and it is now too, just with, in terms of how many people can a museum see in a day. But back then it was also, you know, institutions, you know, really like major international museums talking about like, we're just having too many people in a gallery at a time. Is this ruining the experience? Is this, you know, um, is it dangerous to the artifacts? Like that's, there were a few of those discussions too. Um, that all kind of, the discussion isn't about that anymore. It's can we fit, can we have a hundred people in our giant museum at a time now? You know, that's the kind of discussion. So it's very different reasons, but it's sort of similar. Yeah. And you know, if we, I, I'm kind of saving the discussion on where we got these objects uh, until a little bit later, but you know, so the first real true like museums that often get talked about are the cabinets of curiosities. Curiosity, singular, only one. <laughs> Yeah. And some of the places that like started as these sort of cabinets of curiosities are, like, are still around. I did that thing a while ago in, in the podcast where I like, I talked about the past, but used all present tense, like historians will write. And I really hate it when they do that, but I just talked like that the whole time. But all that to say, some of these places that were started as what we might think of as the first museums, even if they're not really public oriented, they've survived long enough, usually in Europe, um, to have turned into, they might even, some of them still carry the names that they started with, but they, they've turned into more public institutions, but they're still set up in that kind of, I'm thinking of like, you know, like a castle collection, like yeah. stuff like that. The, um, I mean, what did they call them? The Kunstkammers in, you know, yeah. private gun collections. And actually mm -hmm. the first, um, you know, specifically firearms museum um, that was set up for public consumption was in 1688, I think, over in England. Um, that was, it was placed in the grand storehouses, warehouses, I don't know. So what we've established so far in the podcast is that lady curators, as that one guy said one time in our gallery, are not that new, Multiple nor are Firearms labels. Museum. Oh, yeah, and... Trilingual labels, lady curators, and gun museums are really, 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 really old. You can't say that about women. What? That we're old. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were going <laughs> to give me five for lady curators. Lady curators. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, they, they are really, really old because I read some article. It was a kind of, I laughed kind of because it talked about the fact that really the modern concept of the museum didn't emerge until the 18th century. And I went, huh. Firearms museums predated that. <laughs> well, and then you have like collections that didn't really start as museums, but are, and this gets into the, like where stuff came from. And I have another thought that I'm going to have to tangent on because okay. that's what we do. Um, but like a, a collection, like the Royal Armory collection, it starts out as like a working arms collection, but then slowly over time, and maybe not even that long. I don't actually know the history of the collection. We have to ask Jonathan if we ever have him on the podcast, but um, 
but over time that collection not really founded as a cabinet of curiosities or as a museum uh, is suddenly one of the large like well not suddenly <laughs> that's the totally incorrect word but is eventually the one of the largest arms collections in the world um, yeah. well and what's kind and of that started in what like I don't know, 1500, something like that. Something like that. Well, and the other thing that I always find really interesting with early museums and these kind of cabinets of, of curiosity, which we've said that word a bunch, we haven't really explained it because we just assume people know what we're talking about. But basically, I mean, it's exactly what it sounds. It's like shelves and shelves of cool shit, you know? And yeah. they kind of sometimes bridge the gap of like historically significant and relevant and like weird and creepy. You know, what my one historiography professor loved to show the uh, throw shade on was antiquarians. <laughs> you like to throw that word around a lot. Yeah. Um, also, I had the thought, like, what if that lady in Babylon had a, like a knife or sword in her collection? Would she have been then also the first female arms curator? Son of a bitch. <laughs> Your face. <laughs> um Probably, whatever. She sounds cool. I kind of want to like time travel and be her friend. But she probably would. Sure, like there would be no problems with that yeah, at no, all. No, not <laughs> it at would all. go great. Um, I feel like, do you have English on that label? <laughs> Excuse me, your museum is not accessible enough. <laughs> um, so yeah, so these cabinets of curiosities, they exist, um, you know, and yeah, a lot of them do showcase um, stuff from around the world. But then at the same time, you know, you got like the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia that's body parts and weird sciencey things. And P.T. Barnum, you know, creates, I would say P.T. Barnum like creates the first like museum question mark. And that's, <laughs> that's the category of like, is this a museum or yeah. is this an attraction? You know, because there is a big difference and we still, I make those, you know, delineations today with institutions because just because they've got historic stuff doesn't mean it's a museum. Um, and you know, Barnum was, had all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah. And there's like this whole debate in the field, you know, Barnum's pro he's a great example of it, but there's a, a really contemporary debate about like pop-up museums and experience museums. And like, there is a sort of governing accrediting body for museums in the U S and a few international ones, but that also doesn't mean that the word museum or curator or anything are like they're not legally like if you're it's all suggested terms so anybody can like set up what they call a museum and you know if it's more of an attraction or if it's an actual accredited institution you know that's harder for the public to distinguish but you know that's why i have stuff like there was an article uh, i think we both read it last year about like the ice cream museum or something like they call themselves a museum but by any museum professionals like opinion they're not we did not go through that article for the record. Well, I read it twice, so. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then, you know, and so the museum ultimately like evolves from the idea of a cabinet of curiosity, this kind of, you know, weird, you know, let's line everything up, you know, on a shelf to something that's more, you know, interpretive. But the other big part of the history of museums is not just who gets to consume it, but I was trying to come up with a really, like academically proper way of saying it, but I can't. Um, but like the fact that it's not just, you know, it's open to the public, but, but you know, whose stuff is in the museum and how did it get there? Yeah. And this is that's a like big issue, especially today. 
Yeah, especially right now, especially today. And it was a debate that like I heard in grad school, um, but it was one of those like it hadn't been thrust into like the public sphere yet. And now it very much is. Um, but yeah, it's the Elgin marbles gets brought up a lot, right? Everybody uses, I was trying to think of something else because like everybody uses the Elgin marbles, uh, Nag um, the native American. Yeah. yeah Nag is a great example, but essentially how did museums get this stuff and how are they curating it to show like only certain aspects of history? You know, like, are they only telling a certain side of the story because they're only, they only have these artifacts or they only got these artifacts. Uh, and then did they get these artifacts, you know, in super uncomfortable ways? Um, and the answer is a lot of times, super uncomfortable ways. Uh, Luckily can, we're kind of like, I don't know, at least the CFM collection is pretty. Yeah. Yeah. No, the CFM collection is pretty fine, but like, I don't know. I'm thinking more like in terms of like the broader museum, Right. Um, yeah. Field. And, you know, a lot of that was, you know, colonization and, you know, conquering other lands and taking their stuff. And so there's been a big debate of, like, should you return it? Um, or, you know, because it's, <laughs> it's been with me longer. What was that? Oh my gosh. What was that video you were watching? Because <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that was the probably the most, that's what I think prompted a lot of this because it was the most right. accurate thing about museums. <laughs> it was like finders keepers get lost. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was about, you know, British, you know, people taking, you know, stuff from all over the world and then like, you know, people from those parts of the world coming into a British museum and having to pay admission to see their stuff. And they're like, you know, has anybody, and the, the, the comedian was like, has anybody like, you know, thought, like maybe they should just go in and ask if they can have it back. And he said something like, but not the British. The British respond with, what was it? What was it? Oh, we're not done so. looking we're at not it. not done looking at it. <laughs> so if anybody wants to look up James Acaster Museums, because he's a very funny comedian that does a much more entertaining job of explaining yeah. than we do. <laughs> but it is true. Because it but is yeah, it's like true. Like it was like, uh, it's we're still looking at it, like go away. Like that was the response of museums collectively for a long, long time. Yeah, well, and I mean, the like, if we're talking about US museums, you know, on large, I mentioned the Native American Grave Protection and Repatriation Act, um, say that 10 times fast, but I mean, that was a really big one because I mean, early museums have a very big, in America, have a very big black eye for what they did with, you know, Native American artifacts and the ways that they went about getting those things. I mean, it was not, kosher a lot of the times i remember in college learning about you know the well maybe i shouldn't name museums but i feel like if i learned about it in college it's public information um but you know looking at like uh i believe one of the museums in philadelphia had um you know all, they had actually hired a native person to go to other tribal nations and like basically steal their stuff and they, you know, created this, you know, very large collection. And then when they were done with the person, they were just like, bye, didn't provide them any protection, you know, any of that. And they just threw them back out in the world. And the Smithsonian, you know, as much as we, you know, are happy to have our Smithsonian museums, I mean, they did some really bad things with, you know, collecting, you know, native artifacts and, you know, people. 
you know, remains. And that's why, you know, the Native American Great Protection Repatriation Act was ultimately put into place. Now, Smithsonian has their own version of that, that they must abide by, that basically um, gives, uh, if I'm correct, it's been a long time since I said this, the first right of refusal to the tribal nations um, that those artifacts and human remains came from. Um, you know, and, and some, like we've got the Plains Indian Museum in our institution that has a great relationship with the Native communities and really works with them on all of that. And, you know, and we do the, um, oh, the smudging, um, you know, and the cleansing of a lot of the sacred artifacts. So, you know, some museums like, you know, throughout history have kind of made amends for what they've taken. And a lot of the tribal nations, you know, have allowed the, the artifacts to stay where some of them do take it back. Um, but, you know, that's a, that's a really big part of our early museum history. Hence the whole like joke that I made at the beginning about the devil, you know, because we do take things that are not ours and they end up in museum collections. And then it's the big debate of, well, it's been here for a century. Does it deserve to stay here? I mean, luckily, you know, firearms collections are usually the least dramatic in that terms of where did they get some of those artifacts? But right. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a big big debate in the museum field. Did I just totally ruin our podcast by talking? No, some I don't think so. I mean, it's it's a really interesting topic, and you know, it also when well, as you were talking, I was thinking of like there's a, a whole debate, even like really well intentioned curators that are out there. Um, do we as museums present a sort of false narrative of history because? we're we only have access to whatever's in our collection and maybe what we can collect you know as we manage a collection and certain things just weren't kept or weren't survived so we highlight these pieces that did and aren't we you know if you go to a civil war museum in the u.s you're really likely to see a uniform or a musket are you that likely in those same museums to see uh, a plantation horn or other material culture of slavery it'll there will be stuff there but the stuff that was like held up on a pedestal for so long was not necessarily a whole picture so now we're trying to piece together parts when the material culture we have in our collection is very one-sided yeah and i mean that's why a lot of museums you know nowadays are trying to move towards more of a discussion-based forum to allow people, you know, with their different experiences, you know, and one thing that has been discussed, you know, within our walls is, is there a way to, you know, put a label up in the art museum for one work of art that may depict, you know, native peoples and then have someone from that tribal nation that's depicted in it, you know, write their own label from their perspective, which I think is interesting, you know, as kind mm -hmm. of the evolution of the museum goes, but um, I think that, you know, even though there are some kind of dark, there are, well, not some, there are dark moments in our history and there are times where we didn't necessarily, you know, the, the definition of museum is to be a steward of a collection, um, mm -hmm. you know, and if we're letting people lick mummies, that's not really, you know. And we're also faced with a slightly, I mean, these are like philosophical questions, but we also have the uh, practical question from like the U.S. Bicentennial on, it was like everybody just collected absolutely anything historic. And if it, if you were a museum, it didn't matter like what your, um, discipline was if like somebody offered you something historic between about 1976 and 1999 you just stuck it in the collection and it, it will be there for the future to decide yeah so we have that that level of artifact collecting to deal with now too yeah 
Um, well, and then you like think about like the world's fairs, you know, they had exhibitions and it's, I mean, it really is a huge topic, but the, the museum today is so interesting to me, just the debates that go on about ownership of artifacts and ownership of narratives. Mm. And, um, you know, you and I have this conversation a lot about how we kind of exist in the 21st century, you know, as a public education institute, but also trying to bring out, you know, other stories. And, you know, it's kind of interesting if you will look at any history, if you take any historic site or museum, you can pretty much trace their lineage of their, you know, successes and failures and trying to interpret the past you know, for whatever the mission of our institution is. Um, so it's, I don't know, it's a really interesting topic. Yeah. It's fun to talk about like our field and dive into it. Um, I don't think a lot I don't of people know if we realize, call this. I don't know if people, I don't think people really realize how intricate and complicated it is as, as a past. Yeah. And the, and the public perception of museums, I think is really passive. Like, you know, the ongoing debate about statues, everybody's like, well, just put them in a museum somewhere. And we're like, like, I, you know, it's where, <laughs> yeah. Where number one and uh, like, why number two. And uh, it's, it kind of ignores all the active roles that museum play in their own collecting. And yeah, it, it's just, I think it's part of a larger public perception that museums are just sort of these passive entities waiting for, you know, something to come along to them and the it is very much a the field is sort of always wrestling with itself over these things and it's kind of interesting to see how it progresses so i've got a question for you and then we should probably close out because we've been rambling for a while but do you think then you know as people tend to have this passive view of us as institutions and you know as we are stewards of an encyclopedic collection you know are we is it, should a museum be more of a steward of the collection or more of an educator of history or equal? Or I think <laughs> I want to say 60, 40 steward. Yeah. Like obviously we have a role to educate, but to me it's more important that this stuff um, is available to whoever comes after me. Yeah. Um, and, a- and not just available, you know, I, I complained about like the collecting trends of the 1980s and 1990s, but you know, I think they were just making sure that everything was available to later generations where we have to make sure that stuff is available to the next generation and even later generations in a way that is manageable. So, Um, you know, it would be ironic, you know, with a lot of the debate about, you know, should curators tell people what to think or should we ask open-ended questions to inspire debate? And if we don't, if, you know, especially right now with what's going on in today's culture, uh, you know, we really can't fully understand people's, you know, people who come from different, you know, races, genders, ethnic groups, um, you know, socioeconomic classes, the people who are represented through our artifacts, does the museum, you know, as steward of collections and taking care of that collection, does it almost go back to being, you know, not a cabinet of curiosity in the, you know, kind of creepy Barnum way, but does it go back to being more about the artifacts and letting people, you know, 
tell their own story rather than the big push that museums have had in the last 20, 30 years of being these big epicenters of entertainment and education for people. Edutainment, as a lot of people hate in the museum field. But wouldn't it be interesting if, you know, this debate about who owns history and, and who is, you know, best to tell those narratives actually pushed museums back to being more about the objects, you know, and just, you know, showcasing them as they are and letting people, you know, have conversation. It'd be kind of, it's interesting. I never yeah. thought about it like that until this very moment. Yeah. And no, that's really, that's a really interesting point. Um, is yeah. Like will this kind of national debate we're having right now sort of force museums? Cause the museum trend has been like pedal to the floor. We are going to do, you know, we're going to fully interpret these artifacts. We're going to put them in context. We're going to do all these things. I'm not saying that that's bad, but I think, that one sort of it is the museum it is the curator's perspective that comes out then if they happen to have a um a slanted one then that's going to come out through the label so will this kind of evaluate uh make us as a field reevaluate i think that's a really really interesting point because that was a that was a philosophy when i went through grad school is like forget these cabinets of curiosities that's really terrible forget the artifact centric mm -hmm. forget all that we're redoing how we do the field. And now, yeah, I think it could I be. I mean, yeah, it was like, let's put on 2% of the artifacts yeah. on display uh, because it's all about interpretation. And now if, you know, there's there's question as to how that interpretation, you know, gets funneled and, you know, presented to the public, then maybe it goes back to that. And then realizing that our museum's already irrelevant one year later. Uh -oh. <laughs> Actually, I mean, we display so many artifacts that we could easily go back to being a cabinet. Of right. We kind of already did it like yeah. by default. But. <laughs> well, I think that this is, I actually felt like I had, I don't know if anybody that's listening cared about what we had to say, but I found it to be a great mental exercise towards the end there. <laughs> I really enjoyed this podcast. I don't really care what our listeners think. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you later. See ya. <laughs> <laughs>